it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, February 24th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome in to the Guy Benson Show from New York City today, also Monday as well. Glad to have you all here between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday and around the clock on our podcast for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, that includes Bonus Benson on the weekends. Catch me tonight on Gutfeld. I'll be on the panel for the full hour, 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. Looking forward to that. I'm also hosting The Big Show Saturday and Sunday, co-hosting with a couple of colleagues and friends, 5 p.m. Eastern on the News Channel, both of those days this weekend. Here at the radio show, follow us at Guy Benson Show. You can follow me personally at Guy P. Benson on those same two platforms. Here's the lineup today. Congresswoman Ashley Hinson, a Republican of Iowa, will join us in the next hour. A member of the new Special Committee on China. A lot to talk about with her. Steve Krakauer will be here talking about a big crack up, another one inside the New York Times. A battle raging between left wing activists and slightly less left-wing journalists. A fascinating dynamic. We'll talk to him about that. John Taffer also stopping by, host of Bar Rescue. Always an entertaining chat with John. Looking forward to that. And then a cameo appearance from Jimmy Fallon, our Fox News radio colleague. He'll swing by on his way to hosting Gutfeld tonight. I'll be part of that crew, but his first time in the host chair in for Greg. They might need to enlarge the chair because Greg's throne is small, honestly. Jimmy is a different body type. We'll talk to him about that. It is all coming up on the Guy Benson Show today. I want to begin by briefly pausing and reflecting on a year of war in Ukraine. We are a year in to Russia's invasion of that country. Technically, they invaded during the Obama administration and took over Crimea and then had that bogus election and referendum. That was the first major invasion of the current pattern and the trajectory that's now played out for a number of years. And they had soft invaded eastern Ukraine and the Donbass region years ago. But the full-blown military invasion of a sovereign neighboring country took place a year ago. And I know that right now, I think a lot of Americans are grappling with questions about how we should feel about it, what our priorities ought to be. Are we in favor of the United States and the West continuing to help Ukraine? And I get that there are different forces and different thoughts tugging people in different directions. I'll just speak for myself and tell you how I feel about it. I believe that it is absolutely in the interests of the United States of America for Russia to lose this war. It is a war that they started by choice, without provocation, and with no justification whatsoever. Like I saw a couple days ago, there was a so-called anti-war protest in D.C. 
of a lot, frankly, of Russia apologists and people with moral compasses that I think are broken. It wasn't that many people, but it got a lot of attention in the press, especially in the state-run media in Russia and China, which should tell you everything that you need to know. If you are anti-war, right, if you're the against forever wars, quote-unquote, element of the left or the right in the United States, your anger about the Ukraine war should be directed overwhelmingly, if not entirely, at Russia. It was Vladimir Putin and his cronies in the Kremlin who decided to do this. They badly miscalculated. Their expectation was to run roughshod over the country, to capture Kiev in a matter of days. There were reports that their top generals were told to pack their finest uniforms for medal ceremonies and a triumphant celebration of the glorious Russian victory in a matter of just a few days. And obviously, that didn't happen because here we are a year later. They don't have most of the country. They've been beaten back a lot of places. They've lost thousands of soldiers. And right now, they're fighting basically to a stalemate, a grinding, gruesome stalemate in certain parts of that country. But I think the underlying point, the most important point is, this is Putin's war. This is Russia's fault. And I think the amount of time and attention paid to trying to deflect onto other issues and blame other people and mocking Zelensky or Americans who have made Ukraine part of their personality and the virtue signaling, I sort of get all of that, right? The parade of celebrities, it's kind of weird. Zelensky's become something of a global celebrity himself. I don't really blame him necessarily. If you're the president of this relatively small country that's been invaded by a hostile neighboring power that's much larger, you would do anything in your power to keep the global community's attention on the conflict and on your side. I really can't blame him for what he's done. I do think some of the hero worship and stuff has been over the top, even though like he's brave and badass and he could have fled. He could have gone to the West. He could have come to America. He could have been the leader of a government in exile just for safety reasons. He refused to leave. There were bombs dropping around him in the capital city and he wouldn't leave. So I give him a lot of credit. I'm not saying that he is perfect or his government is perfect. They have all sorts of problems there, corruption, etc. Right? I think we can look at this with clear eyes without being overly idealized, starry-eyed or anything like that. And yes, some of the Ukraine you know, flag emojis and bios and flying the flags everywhere and making it almost like a religious belief or the basis for tribal signaling, I think some of that does get a little exhausting, and I get why a lot of people want to needle it or poke fun at it. That's fine. But I think stepping back to my initial point, Russia losing the war of aggression, the voluntary, elective, unjustifiable war that they launched themselves, them losing that war is in our interest. Because if they succeed, and I would say especially early on, if they had succeeded just blowing through Ukraine, I think the nationalism and the expansionism 
of a revanchist Russia would have been very dangerous because there are other countries right in that region that Putin also thinks aren't legitimate independent countries and really ought to be part of a new Russia and some sort of reconstituted Soviet Union. Remember, he's, remember he said the collapse of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest tragedies in history. I think most freedom-loving people saw that as a wonderful development, a massive win for freedom. Putin viewed it very differently. So if he were to succeed in Ukraine and started to look elsewhere, oh, what about this area? What about the Baltic states? What about this sort of Central European country? That used to be behind our curtain, our Iron Curtain. Then you start getting into NATO alliances and a requirement by treaty for the United States to get militarily directly involved. Right. For all of the caterwauling and hand wringing about we don't want our sons and daughters going over there and dying. It's not happening. Our boots are not on the ground there. We are giving Ukraine a lot of assistance and help. By the way, may I say, I agree it should not be a blank check for ever and ever with no concrete expectations in place. I do have concerns about our military preparedness and our stockpiles of weapons to defend ourselves, which is job number one. I hear that and I get that. But this is not a boots on the ground situation for the United States. It shouldn't be. But we are giving the Ukrainians a lot of help to fiercely defend themselves at enormous cost to them. For the many Russian soldiers that they're killing, including a lot of this cannon fodder that they're just bringing in, poorly equipped, poorly trained, young people from Russia just getting killed, that's on Putin too. But the Ukrainians are dying. Not just their soldiers, their civilians have been bombed, tortured, slaughtered and thrown into mass graves by Russian troops. I mean, it has been devastating to the Ukrainian people, and we are giving them the tools to fight back and have a chance at winning. I think there's a case to be made that we have been too slow and reluctant to do things in a timely manner that could have actually proactively helped rather than constantly being reactive. But the overall instinct of a lot of Republicans and, of course, the Biden administration to stand up for Ukraine, I think, is the right one. I have no problem with Biden going over there to mark one year. None. Now, when you put that side by side with his response and his team's response in East Palestine, Ohio, that is not a good look. That's on them. We're the superpower on this earth for crying out loud. We can walk and chew gum. We can take care of our own people. We can worry about China. We can focus on myriad threats facing the United States and we can help Ukraine. It's not one or the other. It's not zero sum. But if you look like you are incompetent, and not taking care of certain things, and not taking care of your own people in a place like Ohio, and waiting and wishy-washy, mealy-mouthed, waiting until you're pushed into stuff politically, and then you're very forceful with all the bravado in Ukraine, that's going to tick some people off, and I totally get that. I'm right there with you. But a competent American leadership can and should be doing both, in my view. I don't know how this ends. I don't know what that looks like. I am against U.S. direct involvement. But again, if this were to spread, if Russia and other bad actors, by the way, would be watching, if Russia were rewarded for this, things would be much more dangerous.
for the world and for us because we would have NATO allies that we would be obligated by treaty to defend with not just treasure but blood if the Russians continued to march. That's why I think this is in our interest to help the Ukrainians the way we are, but not further. And when we talk about end games and what this looks like at its conclusion whenever that comes, again, I'm not an expert. I try to defer to experts on this show. We have them on all the time. But to me, it comes back to one person, Vladimir Putin. If we want the war to be over, you can't be demanding that the Ukrainians make a bunch of concessions for a temporary peace. This is Russia's war. If the war is going to end, Russia needs to be in a position where they recognize they have no choice but to end it. Clearly, they're not there yet. But I think going soft on them, making concessions to them, abandoning the Ukrainians, that is not a viable path forward in my mind. Because it might feel satisfying to say, we're against the forever wars, but what if those concessions... And those bad decisions lead to much scarier, bigger forever wars with direct American involvement. That's why I think U.S. interest is core to all of this, not just some distant project that makes progressives feel good. Right. That might be how some of them view it, and that's their business. That's not how I view it at all. And just watching some of the throwback coverage, the flashbacks to a year ago. I'm just reminded of how sickening the invasion was and is. Sometimes things are really complicated and multiple shades of gray. In this one, it's much closer to black and white. The Ukrainians are imperfect. They don't deserve a blank check. We can't just do anything that they ask forever and ever. But they're the victim. The Russians are the aggressors. They're the antagonist in this. And it's not just some morality play. It has concrete consequences for the world, including us. So I'm totally rooting for Ukraine. I understand the reluctancies and the hesitancies, and I think we have to be very smart about how we do this. I understand that a lot of people may not have a ton of faith in this president and his administration to do everything the right way. Granted. They blow it constantly on almost everything. That doesn't change the moral calculus on Russia and Ukraine, and it doesn't change the calculus on U.S. interest either. And I think we can hold multiple thoughts in our brains at the same time. Nuanced thinking, shades of gray thinking in a black and white conflict, if that makes sense. That's my view. A year later. The Guy Benson Show on a Friday just getting started from New York. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. So as we mentioned yesterday, Pete Buttigieg finally decided to show up. He finally deigned to go to East Palestine, Ohio. And I know some people are poking fun at the hard hat and the goggles and the look. To me, that's all superficial. 
The actual significance of this trip was that he was browbeaten into it politically, and he finally felt like he had no choice but to pay attention to this. It was like a week and a half of silence, then finally some tweets and some statements, then a bunch of excuses, and then he went. And he did seem rattled, as Dana Perino told us yesterday. She was pretty harsh in her assessment, but I think that's deserved. What I think is telling about the administration's response, blaming in the last couple of days Republicans and Trump and deregulation, if you actually go through and look at what happened, look at the details, it is factually wrong and misleading. For instance, the deregulation, quote-unquote, that was finalized during the Trump administration in a process that started under Obama, that change in the requirements would not, in either case, under the old rules or the new rules, would not have affected this particular train. So they're grasping at straws, and they're seeking to backfill an excuse to blame their political opponents for what happened. And I think what is so obvious about it, right, what what the tell is, is how long it took them to get to the blame Republicans talking point. Because let's say in their minds they had a very clear, clean, point A to point B direct line between Trump and Republican deregulation and then the derailment in Ohio. They would have been out of the gate with that explanation from day one. They would have been all over that. You know how this administration works. They blame other people for everything. The fact that it took them the better part of three weeks to finally dream up some circuitous explanatory route to Trump did it or the Republicans are at fault, I think underscores that it's BS. They treated it like a political problem from the beginning. They tried to ignore it as long as possible. When that was no longer operative, they did what they always do, which was blame someone else, and it took them a long time to cobble together this explanation, which does not hold up to scrutiny or facts. And if you want more details on that, by the way, For me to show my work, you can read my piece today at townhall.com where I get into it in some detail. But the lag between the incident, the political hubbub, and the blame Republicans talking point, that lag, I think, underscores what garbage it is and what nonsense it is. But they were going to get there eventually. It's what they do. The Guy Benson Show returns with a very bizarre story out of Florida when we come back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com. Our website, podcast free, every day on demand. Bonus Benson on the weekends included. This is a wild story out of Florida. And the way this story is getting attention is a political angle. And I guess it's catnip for certain resistance forces and people in the media. But it's starting to go kind of viral. 
There was a Florida inmate, a convicted felon, we'll get to those details in a bit, who was executed this week. His name is Donald Dilbeck, and he was put to death by the state of Florida. Now, the reason this is getting a lot of attention is that in his final words before he was executed, he took the opportunity to attack Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Interesting choice. Your last words on earth are a political statement against the governor of your state. <laughs> Just like, I don't think was even born when the initial crimes were committed. But this is what he did. So here's the write-up of this whole thing from foxnews.com. A death row inmate in Florida used his final words to criticize Governor Ron DeSantis, claiming the Republican leader has, quote, done a lot worse than him. Just minutes before his death, put to death at the age of 59, by the way, at the Florida State Prison in the death chamber. This happened last night. This man admitted to hurting people when he was young but saved his final comment to call out DeSantis. Quote, I know I hurt people when I was young. I really messed up. But I know Ron DeSantis has done a lot worse. He's taken a lot from people. I speak for all men, women, and children. He's put his foot on our necks. Okay, well, he doesn't speak for all men, women, and children, especially the men and women of Florida who voted last year, who voted overwhelmingly by almost 20 points to reelect Ron DeSantis. Um, I find this to be a very interesting anti-endorsement for DeSantis that I would imagine the DeSantis organization, operation, proto-campaign can't be terribly upset about. Because from a political standpoint, what has DeSantis been doing the last week or so? He's doing a law enforcement tour in various states. He was in New York. I think he was going to Illinois. Speaking to law enforcement officials and officers, and I just feel like as a matter of politics, the juxtaposition can't be all that unhelpful to him. On one hand, he's backing the blue and talking to cops. On the other hand, there's a death row inmate slamming him in his final words before getting executed. Now, again, I find this to be weird. Like of all the things as you reflect on your six decades on earth and the mistakes that you've made and you're about to pass into eternity to meet your maker, your final choice is to try to dunk on the governor of your state that you don't like. I guess it's a free country. He can say what he wants. And I can imagine some attorneys over at MSNBC right now are doing some research into whether or not one can hire a corpse to be a contributor. This seems like someone who would be right up their alley. The other thing that's not surprising about the story is someone named Donald weirdly attacking Ron DeSantis. That happens a lot in a different context. But I want to make a slightly more serious point about these final words and the context of the final words. He said, I know I hurt people when I was young. I messed up, but, and then he goes on to saying, you know, DeSantis is so much worse, neck on the under the boot of DeSantis or whatever, when he says that he hurt people when he was younger, what he's not maybe mentioning is he didn't just hurt some people. He murdered two people years apart. 
He murdered a cop. This man murdered a police officer back in the late 70s. There was uh, some sort of, it was 1979. The officer was named Lee County Deputy Dwight Lynn Hall. He was only 31 at the time. So he shot and killed this police officer with his own gun in the late 70s, ending a 31-year-old life. There was a struggle. There was a a skirmish because this guy, this now executed killer, was being pursued for carjacking charges. And then there was this fight, this physical altercation, during which he took the officer's gun and murdered him. He was young at the time. He was a teenager. He was sent to prison. Now, you can say it wasn't premeditated, although... I'm not a lawyer, but it sounds like it might be felony murder if you're trying to escape from another felony and you murder a cop. I mean, it's very bad, but you can say, well, he was a teenager. Maybe he deserves a second chance. Except while still in prison and based on some lax policies, about 11 years later in 1990, this guy was able to have an opportunity because he was sort of on a a work detail, uh, not locked up like a dangerous killer, he took that opportunity, he exploited that opportunity to escape. He stole a knife. He then tried to carjack a woman to take her vehicle. She resisted, and he murdered her. He stabbed her to death. In fact, let me pull up her name. Her last name was Van. Faye Lamb van fatally stabbed in 1990 by this guy murdered a cop spent some time in prison escaped custody and then stabbed a woman to death her family by the way was in the gallery watching the execution they were there to witness it and they put out a statement strongly supporting the execution they wrote 11,932 days ago, Donald Dilbeck brutally killed our mother. This was in a letter that they put out. We were robbed of years of memories with her. It has been very painful ever since. However, the execution has given us some closure. I've talked about this a few times on the show. I am in practice functionally against the death penalty. I know this is different than a lot of conservatives. Most people on the right are in favor of the death penalty. I want to explain my views on this. I am not against the death penalty in principle. I'm not someone who thinks it is inconceivable and immoral and no one should ever be executed by the government. No, I think there are people who actually deserve to die and have earned it and need to be put down because they are a danger to anyone that they are around as long as they are still drawing breath. I'm not against the death penalty in that sense. However, having read a few books on this, seeing, yes, some of the through the years racial disparities in the death penalty being meted out, I will point out that this guy we're talking about in Florida was white. But some of those disparities made me uncomfortable, I think worthy of some conversation. And then there are cases where people are on death row and then they've been exonerated by evidence, including DNA evidence. And I just cannot 
live with the possibility of an innocent person being put to death by the state. Right? I understand that the the standard under our laws for conviction is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But I would be much more comfortable with the death penalty if there were a higher threshold of proof required. So proof beyond any doubt for the death penalty. People who are absolutely rock solid, 100% guilty, generally people with no remorse, people with exacerbating circumstances. I don't have a problem with someone like that being put to death. Right, like this this multi-killer out in Idaho. Remember that story we talked about a few months ago where they finally caught him and he's been taunting the guards and showing no remorse and just evil. I have no problem with that person being executed. But if there is a chance that someone is not guilty and they're maintaining their innocence and there's some sort of ambiguity, the possibility of an innocent person being put to death for a crime they didn't commit, to me, is just completely unacceptable, which is why I would like to see different standards of proof. That's sort of where I come from. In this case, in this guy's case, there's obviously no question if he was guilty or not. Right before he denounced DeSantis and then died, he basically admitted it. There was no question. He shot the cop. He stabbed the woman. It happened. I know he tried to euphemize it, that he hurt some people. No, no. You stole two people's lives, young people's lives. You stole them from their families and their friends. And what does bother me, sort of on the other end of our current debate and the current practice over the death penalty, how ridiculous that it took 33 years to execute this man after his second murder, right? To me, one of the arguments for the death penalty is that, especially of a very dangerous person, is if they're alive, they have a chance to kill again. And this guy actually did it. He murdered a cop, which is about as bad as it gets. Then he had an opportunity to escape. He took it and promptly murdered another person. To me... That is a billboard for that individual that they have forfeited the right to be alive anymore. There's no second chance anymore. Once you've killed again, done. But because of our system, and I'm not saying it should be done away with, it's imperfect in some ways, but because of our system and the appeals and the all this endless stuff, it took... Almost 12,000 days, 33 years to finally put this guy down and execute him. To me, that's unacceptable. Right? If you're given the death penalty, and under this circumstance, I'm not opposed to that. You murder an officer, 11 years later, you escape from custody, you immediately murder someone else, you're done. And I don't think it should take multiple decades of endless appeals to delay that fate, as decided by the jury, where there's no question about guilt. That, to me, 
is one of the infuriating, infuriating elements about this story. I was five years old when the second murder happened. And this man was alive all the way until yesterday. And every single day, those families had to carry the pain knowing the person who extinguished their loved one's life was still alive. That doesn't seem like justice either. So it seems like in some ways we've got I've got these conflicting thoughts on the death penalty where I think generally it should be limited more. But executed more promptly for the category of criminal who I think deserve it and there's no question about it. And so I I guess if I were like a more traditional death penalty opponent, I would have more of a principled opposition to it. And I would be in favor of drawing out the process because I think it's, you know, immoral or whatever. That, But that's actually not where I land. I think it should be broadly not used except for a particular class of criminal with a different standard of guilt. And then it should be done promptly without and maybe some sort of quick expedited appeals process as opposed to, you know— in some cases, decades. So I just I want to use this opportunity to talk a bit about capital punishment. Obviously, the the news hook is the DeSantis denunciation, an anti endorsement, a high profile anti endorsement that I'm sure Ron DeSantis is very pleased to receive. Oh, the double murderer and cop killer really hated me. Thank you. You're welcome. By the way, your last minute appeal is denied. Good night. guy got what he deserved and for all the conversation about him and DeSantis I wanted to make sure that I mentioned the names of the victims who were killed decades ago because they're like an afterthought in so much of these stories everyone's talking about it some weirdly like some left-wing outlets are almost holding this guy up like some sort of hero like oh he's one of ours take me take him He could please claim him. But the reason he was in a position to make some deranged statement about Ron DeSantis before he was injected with a lethal injection is because he stole two lives years ago. A woman, a young woman, Faye Lam Van in 1990. And before that, Dwight Lynn Hall, a police officer, in 1979. And perhaps if there's some spiritual justice in all of this, perhaps those two people that I just mentioned are one place right now and have been for a while, and their killer is somewhere else. I'll put it that way. We'll break. We'll come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson uh, Guy Benson Show. Are you ready for some horrible inflation news? I mean, we kind of were expecting this trajectory to slowly improve and, imp- and improve, but apparently uh, not so much. A key inflation uh, gauge... Watched closely by economists and the Fed, accelerated 
more than expected in January. And you're seeing some of the sort of economic social media folks, experts, looking at these numbers and grimacing a bit. Jason Furman, economist in the Obama administration, not a conservative. He was looking at the numbers today and he put out a lengthy Twitter thread that I don't have time to read all of, but here's how it starts. Again, this is a Democratic economist who served under President Obama. He says the economy is very overheated. We have made little, if any, progress on inflation. There is little, if any, reason to expect a large slowdown going forward. And he starts listing some of the numbers. He says a wide range of measures of underlying inflation are telling the same story. And he goes through some of the details. He writes, supply chains unfreezing were supposed to bring down inflation. They didn't. The economy looked like it was turning last summer and fall, but that never materialized. And he eventually says there are still forces going in the direction of high inflation. He said the extremely tight labor market has lagged effects on inflation. He said moving forward, 6% inflation is much more likely than 2% inflation, which is the goal. So a bit of a wake-up call. Gut check on the economy today on inflation, which has been exacerbated by Democratic policies and massive overspending, no matter how much they lie about it. And we are stuck, and it's hurting families, and it sounds like it's going to for quite some time. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show has arrived from New York City. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us, social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. And follow me personally on those same platforms, at Guy P. Benson. A couple programming notes. Number one, tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, Gutfeld. I'm on the panel. Jimmy Fela is hosting. We'll talk to him later on the show, actually, here. Let me just tell you, it is going to be quite a program this evening. You're going to watch it. You're going to DVR it. Just trust me. You won't regret it. And then this weekend, Saturday and Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern time, I'll be on the panel on the big show co-hosting each of those days Also on Fox News Channel. Hope to see you there. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow down today, 336 points, finishing in the red and closing for the week at 32,816. A couple weeks ago, I was out in California speaking at an event. There were a few members of Congress at that event, some of whom we've had on this show before, like Kat Kamak from Florida. Nancy Mace from South Carolina. One member who I'd not met previously, I'd heard of her and seen some of her votes and that sort of thing, was Ashley Hinson of Iowa's 2nd Congressional District. We had the opportunity to meet and hang out and have a few drinks, and I met her husband and just really hit it off. 
someone that, you know, you'll sometimes watch C-SPAN or follow congressional politics and American politics. You're like, oh, man, who are these people that we have in office? Ashley Hinson is not one of those people. She's one of those people I'm glad that we have in Washington, D.C., and she joins us for the first time on this show. Congresswoman, it is great to talk to you again. Great to be with you, Guy, and thanks for the invitation to come on. And, um, yes, we had a lot of great conversations at that summit. We did. We absolutely did. And a couple of cocktails as well. And the thing is, at the conclusion of our cocktails, we're like, we should all get together at some point. And I will just reveal to the audience that we are indeed texting to coordinate said get-together in the near future. So I hope it works out. Absolutely. No, I I think that it is really important to develop good relationships with everyone. And um, that's been my uh, strategy in serving not only in the Iowa legislature before, but in my work in Washington, D.C. as well, because let's face it, Congress uh, has its own challenges. And the the one thing you can count on is that if you develop good relationships and your word is your bond, then that goes a long way. I do want to ask you, before we get into some of the news of the day, since you mentioned your political career, that's not how you started off your life or your ambitions. In fact, you were in this business. You were in the news business. You were a prominent anchor and reporter in Iowa on TV. And then you made the transition into politics and public services. Just talk about that decision-making process. And have you ever regretted it? Because being a local sort of news celebrity can be kind of a good gig. Now, all of a sudden, you're running for office. You've got a bunch of people devoted to hating you and digging up dirt on you. I mean, it's quite a choice that you had to make. Yeah, and it definitely was a a solid decision that my husband and I made together, and I've always been a a we-are-in-this-together kind of team mentality. Um, I was a news anchor for more than 10 years, as you mentioned, and did the morning shift, so got myself out of bed at 2 a.m. for a very long time. (laughs) I certainly don't miss that, uh, that wake-up call in the middle of the night. But um, what I loved about my job as a journalist was getting to ask those really important questions, digging deeper on issues that really mattered. We, We talked a lot about... We call it CPR in the journalism business, but context, perspective, and relevance, and how are you offering that to your viewers? And in this case now, I try to do the same thing for my for my constituents. Uh, give them the context about what's happening, why does my perspective on this issue matter, and what is it? why is it relevant to their daily life? Um, so I try to bring that same kind of filter, um, that journalistic filter, to my work in Congress. And really what it came down to, why I decided to run, was because I had covered state politics. I had covered all of these national issues for years. Iowa being a caucus state, I'd interviewed many of the presidential candidates coming through as well. And um, so I, I, I got a, got to a point where I said, hey, I think I can do this. I can stop talking about it and start doing something about it. And in Iowa, we had a devastating flood in 2008, uh, wiped out a lot of Cedar Rapids and many parts of my now congressional district. And so I was really inspired. I saw legislators on both sides of the aisle work together to get a lot of good policy passed to help protect our state moving forward. But then just a few short years later, I saw a Democrat-controlled House, Senate, and governor here in Iowa destroy our state budget, much like what's happening in Washington, D.C., I might add. Um, but I saw that, and I was so offended because here I was, a taxpayer, getting out of bed at 2 in the morning, working very hard, and just felt like um, our leadership in Iowa at the time had failed taxpayers. And so that, to me, was kind of the first indication that I could say, hey, I, I think I could do this, and I think I would be a solid policymaker. And so 
Uh, the rest is history. I ran in 2016, served two terms in the Iowa House, and then ran for Congress in 2020 and flipped my seat here in Iowa and uh, held it in 2022. So now uh, now here I am on your show, guys. Well, and, and you held it against a fellow former news anchor, right? It was like a battle of the news anchors. Yeah, battle of the TV ladies, I guess you want to call it. But um, what I think that did, though, was for voters is it really it really became about our policy stances, not our backgrounds, because we both had very similar backgrounds, had both served actually in the state legislature together, um, opposing parties and very different viewpoints. And it came down to what my vision was for the future of the country versus hers. Mm -hmm. And I think that Iowans overwhelmingly value their tax dollars. They want to make sure rural America has a seat at the table, and they value safety and security. And all of those things I have delivered on um, in my first term in Congress, and I will continue to do that. And I think that put a pretty clear uh, marker out there of what I would continue to do for yeah. Iowans, and I'm grateful they sent me back. Well, you, you won a squeaker in 2020, and then uh, against this fellow TV anchor who ran a pretty nasty campaign. How much did you win by for the people in the back in 22? Uh, so uh, about eight points there by 2022. Go. So we, we ran up the score a little love bit. Time, we, we love that. We love to see it. And the the other thing is you, you told me just, and we'll move on to the, to the news of the day, just some of the crazy stuff that happens in the process of running for office. I think you were telling me, am, am I remembering this correctly, that the Democratic Party, like in an official, uh, you know, social media post or some sort of news blast they they put out your personal cell phone number for people to call and harass you i mean that's that's nuts yeah and there is a lot of uh, nasty stuff that happens and yeah i did have to change my phone number um after that uh happened because i i, I got several hundred nasty voicemails um as you can imagine and, and that's very frustrating and i understand trust me i i do town hall meetings for that reason because i believe everybody's perspective does matter um, and if I, if I disagree with people, I tell people, hey, try and change my mind, but we can do that in a very civil manner. And so that's what I've tried to um, talk about when, I, when I'm running my campaigns. I try to remain as positive as possible. That doesn't mean that you, you can't contrast with someone who's on an opposing viewpoint of yours. Um, and that's uh, voters expect you to do that, right? They want to know what the differences are, but I think there's a, a way to do that. And um, I think we did that successfully in 2022. All right, Congresswoman, it's the anniversary of Russia's invasion invasion of Ukraine. And I know there's some discussion, including on the political right, about what America should be doing about it. Is the U.S. doing too much, too little, uh, sort of leave that to other people is one rallying cry or stand with Ukraine is the other rallying cry. As we reflect back collectively on the last year and you watch that conflict and you think about America's role in the world, how do you view it? Yeah, well, and I've talked to a lot of Iowans about this issue. Uh, Iowans are very clearly freedom-loving people, and I think it goes without saying we do stand with the people of Ukraine in their fight against Putin. Um, Putin's a thug, plain and simple, and I don't think anyone wants to see Putin win this war. It was an unprecedented invasion of a sovereign nation a year ago today, and we we cannot um, allow that to continue. We can support Ukraine while making sure that there is accountability for the taxpayer dollars that we're sending over there. And I think that's where that balance needs to come into play. We can make sure that they have the lethal aid necessary to win the war. But, I mean, I'm an appropriator, and I think it's really important that we have that oversight over taxpayer dollars so we can make sure they're being spent as they were intended. And I think another important point here, and 
we're, we're hearing a lot about China right now, but China and Russia are really forming an unholy alliance yep. here. And that's, I think, kind of the sleeper cell part of this conversation because they continue to posture super aggressively toward Taiwan. Um, my friend, who's the, the chairman of the Select Committee on China, Mike Gallagher, just got back from Taiwan. And I just, I guess I would highlight what he said coming back from that trip that he wants to make sure President Xi is waking up every day looking toward Taiwan and saying, mm, not today. Today is not the day. Right. So we need to deter that from happening. And we need to make sure that dictators, authoritarian dictators like Xi and Putin are not emboldened in this process. Yeah. And look, I understand there's there's nuance to foreign policy. I also think sometimes there's room for just simple thinking. And it's to me pretty simple. If you've got Russia and China and Iran in an alliance together, I'm very interested in being on the other side of whatever they're, whatever they're up to almost all of the time. And I think some of that comes into play on questions like we're talking about. You mentioned the the special committee on China, and uh, we know Congressman Gallagher well. He's on this program a lot. What is your what is your posture in terms of that committee and what you think ought to be achieved? And can those things be achieved in this era of polarization in a way that is meaningfully bipartisan and doesn't descend into sort of the typical right versus left, R versus D, bickering and sniping that we see so often. Yeah, and I think that this committee is a, a prime example of where uh, people on both sides of the aisle can can overcome those challenges. And you see that in who is selected for this committee, right? It is uh, serious legislators who do want to work together because I think we can all agree that communist China, the CCP, is our greatest threat bar none. Um, and that's something when you look at the vote that came off the floor to populate this committee, stand it up, it was a hugely bipartisan vote. So I think that this is a great opportunity for us to to stand up to um, what is a growing uh, military power, um, growing spy and espionage power. China is spying on us. So whether it's the Chinese spy balloon floating over our country, gathering that sensitive intelligence for a week, or uh, the way I see it, uh, 210 million Chinese spy balloons on our phones because everybody has TikTok on their phones. So we need to make sure that we are putting a stop to the CCP's espionage tactics and um, I think that the purpose of our committee and the balance we're going to strike is understanding that we are a global economy. We cannot uh, separate ourselves entirely from every single industry, but we need to be focused on being strategic and competitive because we have let China get away with things for decades. And there is no reason they should be buying land close to our military bases. There is no reason they should be stealing our intellectual property and being allowed to get away with it. Last topic, and you raised it a few moments ago, in your previous life, in your previous career, you interviewed a lot of presidential candidates coming through your state of Iowa for the caucuses, both sides of the aisle. Obviously, that's starting to ramp up. Uh, There's now a potential primary challenger to Joe Biden in Marianne Williamson, maybe not uh, the most serious of people, but that's sort of an interesting little story out there. And then on the Republican side, so far, two are in. Uh, and expect uh, we, we all expect multiple others to jump in at some point or at least test the waters. Just talk about the process from an Iowan's perspective, because the Democrats have already cut Iowa loose, right? The, that tradition is basically over. They felt like Iowa was not representative, is too white, all the things. So they've they've taken the first in the nation away from Iowa. The Republicans are sticking with the tradition and sort of the sequence so far. 
what's the because I'm I'm open to this idea that maybe it doesn't make sense to always start with the exact same states and it becomes a little cottage industry. Like I can be a little cynical about that. Is there a positive side to it that you experience that you think people should at least think about? Well, absolutely there is. And I think the Democrats abandoned Iowa, and I think it was for the wrong reasons. And realistically, um, you know, they want to cite diversity as being a challenge, but Iowans selected Barack Obama in 2008 to be our presidential nominee. And look what happened there. So I think that it was incredibly short-sighted. Iowans know how to put these presidential candidates through the ringer, and I'm thankful that the uh, Republicans decided to have our backs and continue to back the caucuses in the first in the nation process here in Iowa. And just a few years ago, President Biden was sitting on someone's floor, uh, watching basketball, having a beer with him, having a conversation. And you really get to know uh, somebody's true character. And and like we were talking about, develop a good relationship with them and and get them on the record on policies. Um, You don't get that when it only becomes about who can buy the most TV time and who's going to do a big event um, for a big crowd. So that's where I think Iowa's process does matter when it comes to vetting these candidates and putting them through the ringer. Um, And because of that, you know, I've been as a member of Congress, I think Iowa voters hold me to the same standard they hold our presidential candidates to. And so um, I think that's a really important characteristic of the Iowa caucuses. And I think it's why we still deserve to be first in the nation. And we we do our job to select a good candidate and then um, make sure that they're uh, ready to go and take on the country's problems. Ashley Hinson, Congresswoman from Iowa, the second district in the Hawkeye State. And we so appreciate your time, Congresswoman. Let's do it again and hope to see you and your husband again soon. Well, thanks, Guy. I appreciate the time, and we'll talk very soon. You bet. Have a good weekend. With that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson in New York City. Although the show is based in D.C., how bad is crime in our nation's capital? We keep talking about this issue. Well, this bad, at least as of yesterday, 82 carjackings so far this year. Have there been 82 days this year? Yeah, I don't think so. We're less than two months into 2023, 82 carjackings. And the city council just voted to reduce criminal penalties for carjackings and other violent crimes. It's just insane is the only word that comes to mind because it's applicable. How bad is crime in our nation's capital? Here's a tweet from... Today, Mayor Bowser in D.C., beginning on Friday, so today, D.C. residents who own a 2011 through 2021 Kia or Hyundai can pick up a free steering wheel lock from D.C. police. Because I guess these are cars that are being stolen most frequently. So while criminals just want to get a brand new car The mayor's like, come get your free steering wheel lock, courtesy of the D.C. taxpayer. This is their, I guess, solution to one of these problems. You think the criminals might just move on to other makes and models? It's like, talk about a Band-Aid. Nonsense. Also, it won't help the carjacking problem. I did see this story of a woman who actually stood up for herself. A woman in a neighborhood in D.C., was in the process of being carjacked by a 15-year-old with a gun. And she said, quoting now from ABC7 New York, baby, you better shoot me because you're not taking my car. She started hitting him. She started yelling at him and calling for help. 
The neighbors loved this woman. They all came running out, and they caught him. And this grandmother was taunting the kid. Oh, you're going to jail today. You're definitely going to jail. Yes, you are. The kid was taken away in an ambulance. That's what the neighbors did to him. Does this sound like a group of people who want to coddle criminals and defund the police and reduce crime penalties? It doesn't sound that way to me, does it? I'm glad she's okay. I hope that 15-year-old learns his lesson from the neighborhood as opposed to the D.C. City Council. We'll take a break. We'll come back. The Guy Benson Show returns after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through the Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast free every day. And I'm very glad to have you here. I also want to play a soundbite for you that I saw making the rounds yesterday. It is from one of our favorite people whose soundbites we play quite often on this program. It is the lovely and talented press secretary at the White House, Corrine Jean-Pierre. And I guess someone decided that yesterday was the day for them to come out and talk about all their achievements as an administration in the diversity department. Cut 20. Here's what she said. Uh, the cabinet is majority people of color for the first time in history. The cabinet is majority female for the first time in history. A majority of White House senior staff identify as female. Forty percent of White House senior staff identify as part of the racially diverse communities. And a record seven assistants to the presidents are openly LGBTQ+. So, again, this is something that the president prides himself on. Okay, I'll say this in her defense. She actually read those things successfully without butchering them. Right. Which is a good I mean, that's a good development for her. I slow clap. That was 22 consecutive seconds of successful talking by Corinne Jean-Pierre. And you got to give credit where it's due. Twenty two entire seconds. Now. Look, I understand the importance of representation and visibility. Right. These are not made up things. I think it's important for kids to look around in society and prominent areas, high profile areas, and see people that they can relate to on some level. There is value to that. I am not minimizing the entire concept. However, some of the identitarian, obsessive bean counting gets kind of exhausting to me. It's like diversity and inclusion and equity. If you put that together, you might get an acronym like DEI just for the sake of those things. Right? There's no mention, no even hint at qualification or talent in that. Which is not to say that these people, none of them, are talented or qualified or anything like that. But that's not what's being emphasized. It's immutable characteristics. That's it. The cabinet, majority people of color for the first time ever. Okay, majority female, majority of White House senior staff identify as part of racially diverse communities. Is that now something that's allowed? I know that there is identifying with gender. That is very much not just allowed. It's basically requirement now. But at least to my knowledge, identifying as a certain race, if you're not, is still taboo, still a no-no. The transracial stuff is forbidden according to their rules. 
I saw a story just the other day about another racial fraud of a woman who pretended to be like three different minorities, and she's just white, and her mother called her out publicly. I think it's very interesting that more and more people are caught doing this. It maybe gives us a glimpse into what our society is now incentivizing, right, to basically claim, even fraudulently, victimhood. These people say and profess that we are this horrible, systemically racist society, and yet you have white people clamoring to pretend to not be white, to attain some other status that they would not get as themselves. I just, I think that's notable. Let's put it that way. Back to KJP, a record seven assistants of the president are openly LGBTQ+. Fine. Who cares? Again, yay for visibility and inclusion and all that sort of stuff. Are they good at their jobs? Are they achieving results for the American people? You could have an entire administration of nothing but transgender, Native American, black, queer, they, them pronouns. And if they were getting the job done and pursuing American interests successfully, then it shouldn't matter. I understand that's not the reality. I understand there's more nuance to it. But the fixation, the obsession on these types of statistics and reciting them like they are unto themselves a meaningful achievement, I think is the wrong path. As I've said before, the HHS secretary, woefully unqualified to be health secretary in this country, installed during a pandemic. He's made a bunch of terrible decisions, including on monkeypox. Remember that? And he is in the position exclusively because of his race. That's it. They admit it. Is that good? Is that actually progress? KJP herself is like every box checking enterprise on this stuff. Is she good at the job? Is she a capable, sharp spokesperson for the president? I don't think so. Is it a hate crime to notice that? No. Visibility, representation, that's fine. Results, qualifications, character matter a lot more. At least they should. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Steve Krakauer now joins us. He's a journalist, author of a brand new book entitled Uncovered, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Steve, great to have you here. Hey, Guy. Great to be on with you. Give us the elevator pitch on the book. Talk maybe about the fact-checking fetish element, the anti-speech activism of people who are supposed to be First Amendment defenders and champions. There's a lot in this book. Yeah, thank you. Yes, uh, the the fact checking fetish, anti speech activism is is in the chapter about one of the five major problems that I've laid out about the modern media. And and yes, I, I think that the we saw during the Trump era so many media mistakes, so many things that got so much worse than they were in only 
eight, 10 years ago, something fundamentally shifted. And there's, there's a few factors to this, but, but certainly one of them is the, is the fact that the, there's, we've seen this rise on social media of journalists becoming influencers themselves, but also journalists working to essentially censor everyday people and viewpoints, whether it's from COVID or other factors. The, we, what I've described as anti-speech activists in the press, journalists are supposed to be the ones who should be for the First Amendment, for free speech, and instead it's gone the other direction. They're trying to clamp down on the average American finding new information and, and new viewpoints, and, and that's really alarming. And I lay out in the book, I, I really am able to go into detail in these books, talk to lots of people across the spectrum in the industry on the record about these problems and lay out exactly, diagnose, kind of, here's what happened, here's why it happened, and here's Here's at the end how we can maybe get this a little bit better than it is right now. Because the thing is, Steve, this is a tale as old as time with the media being biased. They've been left leaning basically forever. This is something, you know, you think about Bernie Goldberg and the book Bias. I mean, decades ago at this point, that's not new. But as you just said, in the last, let's say, eight to 10 years, it has taken a real turn away from bias, I would say, into something more pernicious and more toxic and more unhealthy, and I'm trying to put my finger on exactly what it is, how to describe it. I know some people call it corruption, uh, you know, activism. Maybe there's a combination there, but I think you and I would agree that the bias problems that existed years ago were bad, and whatever we're facing right now is new and worse. I can tell you there was legitimate uh, complaints that could be said about CNN and other outlets in the media and the kind of the mainstream press. I think that's valid, but clearly something major shifted around 2015, 2016. And yes, some of it had to do with president Trump himself, but that wasn't the only thing. And, and I, I think one of the, 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 the most important elements here, and I really break this down in one of the chapters is how Donald Trump's election and the response that the media had to it, that, the idea is they believed in, in some capacity. Some people believed that it was this great business opportunity. Some people were sort of swayed by the personal side of it. Donald Trump was friends at one time with some of these people in the media, and then he's like this turncoat to the class. So there was business and personal, but it was also they really believed that there was this existential threat to democracy. And so rather than doubling down on their standards, rather than actually that thinking that's the time we need to actually adhere to our principles more than anything else – they decided, okay, well, now is the time to relax the guardrails. And suddenly it's, it's too important. We, we can't just stick to our principles for this one. No, we have to actually abandon our principles in order to meet this moment. Well, yeah, because they, they, dealt- they would say, and, and people have actually explicitly said it, that even-handedness and uh, you know, a lack of bias is bad. And being biased is affirmatively not only good but necessary in this era, and it's actually malpractice – to maintain the old standards. And of course, by the way, if you were seen as some sort of hero speaking truth to power in a resistance sense of that term, then you can become rich and famous. I mean, a lot of bad incentives seem to align, not all at once, but crystallizing in a period of just a few years where the whole paradigm changed awfully quickly. It did, yes. The incentive structure is completely broken. I, I write about this and I talk to some people, including media executives, Sharon Waxman at The Wrap, for example. And you know, we, we were able to you know, use the book. I, I, the first book I've written, normally I'm writing these short columns. This one I could actually get into detail on this, where she says she has seen her own reporters, and this is across the board and across the industries, 
go away from stories, cover them differently, or potentially not cover them at all because of the response that they might get on Twitter. You know, the negative feedback they might get. And yep. it, go, it works the other way also. Uh, you, we have seen in case after case, positive reinforcement on social media, getting more retweets and likes and followers can lead journalists, uh, people that are in theory supposed to be objective, to cover stories or not cover stories simply because of the way it can build their brand and can make them more famous. And, and I think we see that on air with people like Don Lemon, for example, who went from being a, a journalist, essentially, a, you know, a, a news host into a primetime bomb thrower and seeing his brand rise from it, seeing book deals. And, and all of this is pernicious. All of this hurts the, the industry as a whole. It hurts the individual journalists. And as we see in poll after poll guy, I, we just last week with Gallup, record lows, the American yep. public trust in the media. Yep. All of these are factors. And it's very richly deserved, and yet the reflection and introspection seems almost non-existent in a lot of these quarters, which I think is uh, unfortunate and actually dangerous to the future of news gathering and news reporting, which is important. I'm on the opinion side, but the news side is vital, not just at this network, but everywhere. And to see a lot of the blurring of the lines, I think for the reasons that you lay out in your book, Uncovered, uh, they're they're concerning. They're alarming. I mean, talk about threats to democracy and all the overheated rhetoric, the press becoming what it is and the erosion of trust. I mean, that is right up there on my list of concerns. Now, Steve, I want to talk about The New York Times specifically, because The Times considers itself and many people agree it's the paper of record. We are seeing some really fascinating wars playing out internally at The Times from the editor who was effectively forced out just for green lighting a totally mainstream op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton. We remember that in those days, sort of crazy days uh, of, of 2020 and beyond. We saw one of their most respected, long-tenured science reporters fired over this crazy woke controversy where there were people braying for his blood, basically, in the newsroom. He's out. There's an active battle right now on trans issues where the guild, the union inside the New York Times is getting bludgeoned from both sides. And it seems like some of the actual journalists, almost overwhelmingly, I would say, Democrats and liberals, but they actually believe on some level in journalism versus the activists in the newsroom. And there's a lot of them, a growing number of them, especially on the younger side of things. I mean, what is happening inside the New York Times right now seems pretty consequential to me. Give us some of your thoughts on what you're seeing there. It is. I've got asked why I spend so much time on the New York Times in the book and in, in talking about it. And I think it is just so representative of where the entire industry stands. As you mentioned, the New York Times is kind of the paper of record. That's what they describe themselves as. And in a way, I actually do believe that we need a strong New York Times. And in some ways, every day, there is some journalism that's being done at the New York Times that's good. And at the same time, Every single day, they are undermined by their own staff, whether it's on social media, it's in the Slack channels, as we've learned about, in all of these yeah, their stories. Their Slack seems like the most poisonous cauldron in the world, <laughs> New York Times it's Slack. Just, it's just on fire. And, and one of these, these Slack references that we're, that we're talking about, I lay out in the book and I talked to someone on the record who was an opinion uh, staffer at the time of this Tom Cotton op-ed. Now he's at New York Magazine, and he lays out in, in uh, incredible detail what was happening internally there, including Steffers, as he says, crying because their friends were mad at them 
because they were working at the New York Times at a time when they would publish a, an op-ed by a United States Senator Tom Cotton. I mean, just psychotic. insane. Yes, it's insane. And, and the problem I, I see with that story that's so representative is that it ended up playing out on Twitter. The, these, these group of, of New York Times staffers got together and said, publishing this puts the lives of our colleagues in danger. And they were able to use that, that just complete, just ridiculous spin and get action. They were able to, lower level staffers were able to sway their own bosses to fire that opinion editor and, and cause other you know, staffers to leave the paper over it. That's a huge problem. But the other thing about it is, is, as we talk about, the New York Times, they're supposed to be staffed by journalists. I get the idea that maybe activists would be mad that the Tom Cotton op-ed was published. Sure, they're activists. But journalists are the ones who are supposed to be about free speech and about a free flow of ideas. In fact, the New York Times actually changed the term for op-eds after the Tom Cotton op-ed was published and all the backlash they got. Now they're called guest essays. <laughs> As if, you know, no, these are just guests here at this paper. No, now they have to actually have the separation. No, it's, now, it's so stupid. And the, the problem is... The activists are actively infiltrating and taking over newsrooms. And if you get full institutional capture of the down the line, supposedly neutral news media by activists, then the the show's over. The game's over. Journalism in a meaningful sense is dead. And I think that's why we're seeing some of the pushback just in the last few days. Steve, last question here. On the trans stuff, you had a bunch of activists angry that The New York Times was not being 100 percent activist on trans issues and gender issues. They made a big public show of it, open letters, angry demands, all this stuff. Management actually said, no, we're not going there. Then the union took the side of the activists. Now you've got journalists furious at the union backing up management and attacking the activists, their own colleagues in some cases. This seems like a pretty significant showdown. I think it is. I, I think it actually is a, a one of the rare signs of the pendulum swinging in the right direction in the media that the bosses felt strong enough in their convictions. And again, we're not we're not talking about going so overboard about these transits. I mean, they're just covering some general reporting about the facts on this that they were able to hold strong on it. And I, I lay out in the last chapter of the book some actual solutions. One of those is staffing your news organizations with people that are not obsessed with Twitter and obsessed with trying to, to satisfy the activists. Yep. That is actually what's happening here at the New York Times. And I do think that that's a step in the right direction. Now, will they continue to hold strong? As the, will it get too loud? I hope not, but it's something to watch. And, I, and I, I'm a little bit encouraged as the week is coming to an end here. Steve Krakauer is a journalist. His new book is Uncovered. How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Available now. Steve, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks, Guy. Great talking to you. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Here in studio, we will welcome John Taffer, host of Bar Rescue. Looking forward to that. Straight ahead. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, our final broadcast hour of the week. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day at that website or foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Gutfeld with our upcoming guests, as a matter of fact, both of our guests this hour. Part of the crew tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern time on Fox News Channel. I'm also co-hosting The Big Show Saturday and Sunday on FNC, 5 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there. This hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing, just incredible. If you haven't tried it, you should. If you're 21-plus only, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Well, the aforementioned guest that we welcome in studio here in New York is John Taffer, host of Bar Rescue. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, founder of Taffer's Tavern. You can follow him on Twitter, at John Taffer. And crucially, a brand-new season of Bar Rescue premieres this Sunday, the 26th of February at 10 p.m. Eastern on the Paramount Network. Very popular show. John, we've had you on the program before, never in person. It is so good to meet you. Oh, same here, Guy. You know, I feel like we developed a great friendship talking on the phone, but looking in your eyes is much better. It's much, much better. And you were telling me off the air that you actually occasionally listen to the podcast, which is so kind. That means so much. I've got to now come and, like, return the favor and eat your food. <laughs> That's a deal. i got to tell you, I listen to your podcast so much, I know that you weren't there Monday, and I was very disappointed. <laughs> sure, I was overseas. <laughs> but we're back here. And first of all, let's just start with Bar Rescue, the new season, starting this weekend on Sunday night. Talk about what's in store for the audience. Well, you know, it's interesting, Guy. Last year with the pandemic, operators had a pretty valid excuse of why they weren't successful. Pandemic's over now. Revenues in restaurants are up 20 to 25 percent all across the country. So there's an opportunity to seize this now. Can I ask you just quickly, up 20 to 25 percent compared to last year or are they up? Pre-pandemic. Okay, there we go. So that's a significant Yeah, that's big. So imagine you own a business. You've gone through the pandemic. You're in debt $400,000. You've burned off your parents' retirement. Now revenues are high. You have an opportunity, but you're stung by the pandemic. There's this tentativeness, this hesitation. You're not as aggressive, as assertive as you used to be. So you're still sinking. Costs are higher. We know that. The inflationary impact has been huge. And what a lot of people don't understand, Guy, is food cost is one-third of revenue in a restaurant. So if my chicken breast goes up a dollar, i got to raise it $3 to you. On the menu. On the menu. If it goes up $2, i got to raise it $6. So restaurants haven't been able to absorb the level of inflation and pricing that we experience from a cost standpoint. So we're fighting for costs. Employees are a big issue today. Getting them, retaining them is a big issue today. We're almost a little fearful of employees. We have to be so careful because they can walk out to keep them and to get them to work for us. So it's a whole new world in developing human resource relationships with your team, working vendors harder. But when you're stung by the pandemic and now you have to work harder than ever before to fix these things, Mm -hmm. they're not doing so. So this season is really aggressive, Guy. I mean, I'm all over it. They're surrounded by opportunity. Their families are going down the tubes, but they're frozen. So I got to give them that little kick in the butt, per se, to get them going again. Break through a little bit. With the occasional raised voice, perhaps. Once or twice. Allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly. Allegedly. We'll have to tune in. We'll have to tune in to see if that happens. So just in a nutshell, how do you address those? Because, look, some people are successful in this business. A lot of people aren't. It's a very tough, grueling business for sure. Then you have these cross currents that you're talking about where on one level – 
things are bouncing back in a big way, which is great. Thank God, finally. Yep. Yep. On the other hand, though, it's still rough out there. And I understand I'm sort of tentative as a person, very conservative by nature. You just want to keep the train on the tracks. If you're basically fearful of losing employees, you can probably have employees not doing a very good job and you don't want to say anything to them because you're worried that they're going to go out the door. But service is a huge element of keeping customers coming back. That's a fine line to try to walk. How do these restaurant owners deal with that? You know, it used to be that we would train employees to get them up to our standards. Now we're sort of reducing our standards to the level of the employees because we can't push as hard as we used to. So somebody like yourself, yourself and your husband, you might go out to dinner and say, you know what? I know they're struggling with employees. I'm going to be forgiving as a customer. Yes. At some point, that's going to end, Guy. And people are going to say, you know what? These restaurants are 25% more than they used to be. I want good service. Yeah. I want to be taken care of. Absolutely. And by the way, they're expecting a 20% tip from me. Absolutely. So I think that the patience is starting to wear out in customers. They want to have a traditional good service experience. So imagine the revenue is out there, guy, but I can't quite achieve that profitability. It's a very frustrating time. On the food price issue, because I've read a few stories about Due to the cost at the grocery store being way up, inflation, bad, mm-hmm. bad news out today, actually on inflation. Yep. Some people are now going out to eat more because they view it as cheaper than buying stuff and cooking at home. But, of course, they're absorbing those costs on the menu prices too, right? I, I, I've questioned yeah. the logic of this. So, so super, uh, restaurants they are saying are up 8.3 or so percent, whereas supermarkets are up 11 and change. Right, So they're saying that that's created a greater perceived value, but it doesn't because the chicken breast is really three times more in a restaurant. But it's a cooked product versus a raw product. Yeah. So it's not a fair comparison. But I guess from an inflationary standpoint, restaurants are providing a better value than supermarkets right now. What's the number one piece of advice that you're giving to these restaurateurs and owners and families and, and the people that you deal with every day? of trying to restore normalcy where the market is still pretty disrupted. Yeah. And I think it comes down to understanding what business that we're in. I don't believe you're in a radio business. I believe you're in a reaction business. If your radio work doesn't create a reaction, it's meaningless. So the radio isn't your product. The reaction is. I believe the same is true in a restaurant business. I'm not cooking food. I'm cooking a reaction. I'm achieving it through the food. So I can't take it a step further. Many people think that the product of a restaurant is food and beverage. I think the product is the reaction. I don't play music. I play reactions. I achieve it through music. I don't serve people. I want to create reactions. I achieve it through service. So if you create reactions, you win. Suddenly a little longer service doesn't bother you so much because you've connected with this business. right? And you've this, bought in. You've bought in. You bet. So you're a little more forgiving in those situations. So today I need to own you, guy. I need to play the music you want to hear, have the products that you relate to. I need to target my business effectively to you so that I know I can get that frequency out of you. And a lot of operators are missing that mark, you know, that really targeting to the customers and the opportunities before them. We've been talking about looking backwards to pre-pandemic norms and how to get back to that and achieving some of that. And I think in this industry, some things will never change and shouldn't. But there's also the innovation side of the business, which I think a lot of people are resistant to, not just in the business, but customers as well. What's that roadmap looking like 
moving forward? Because I know you've been thinking a lot about that, implementing some of these yeah. ideas in your restaurants, for yeah. example. Taffer's Tavern, when we started it, we said to ourselves, boy, the casual dining sector can't sustain itself. Seven people in the kitchen. We can't afford that anymore. They're quitting and leaving all the time. The training, the cost of turnover is immeasurable in some cases. So I said, could I use technology to eliminate 60% of the people in the kitchen? Could I even do such a thing? At the National Restaurant Association convention five years ago, there were six robotic booths. This year, there's over 100. And that's where the industry is going. You know, it's interesting, Guy. People said, boy, these these computers and these automated equipment, they're going to take away jobs. It's not that. We have a job we can't fill. So we're filling these positions with technology. So technology is replacing the holes left by humans, not the other way around. Does it work? Are there downsides? What's the experience been well, like? To me, I believe that restaurants should be connective. I don't want you to come in and use a kiosk and digitally order your food. I want my server to look in your eyes and connect with you. So you'll find at my Taffer's Tavern, there's no technology in the front of the house. Very traditional service experience. Mm. All the technology's in the back of the house. But when a machine makes a food product, the consistency is absolute. Better than the human in many cases. Interesting. Are there downsides? The cost of the equipment is a downside. Maintenance that, can be a downside. That's upfront, though, compared oh, yeah. to the ongoing oh, yeah. struggles so, that you were talking about, hiring and There's retaining. not a lot of downside. I mean, seven days of training becomes seven hours of training, which makes turnover much more palatable, right? And you can get through it and you can survive it. You're not closing your restaurant down because you lost two cooks. So it really is a solution that all of us are looking at, and the industry is jumping on it. One question I have in the universe that we live in now with social media and all of that, and this is not a new phenomenon, but I feel like the bias of people who fill out online reviews tends to probably lean in the direction of people who are mad about something. Oh, I completely agree with right? you. Right. So you have a bad experience. You're more likely to go online and, and rage tweet or do all caps on you know open table or whatever it's going to be, Yelp. How do you counsel people to not get too in their own heads about the occasional negative review online versus tuning all of it out and maybe missing some good and important constructive criticism? What's the balancing act? Yeah, every morning my team gets up. The first thing we look at is online reviews of all the restaurants. We respond to every single one. If you told me the place is great, we're going to respond and thank you for coming. If you say the place isn't great, we're going to talk to you about it and invite you back in to make it right. But that's an opportunity to connect with people. Mm -hmm. You know, if you said to me, if you called me up to your table and you're sitting and your steak is overcooked or something, this is an opportunity for me to turn this into a connection, a relationship between us. And like a positive experience. Absolutely. Because I I know as as a consumer, and I used to work a little bit in restaurants, when you can make something right for someone – and just go a little bit out of your way to make them understand that you care, that goes a long way. So you take that negative and you turn it into a relationship. And, and But too many operators fail in those moments. They almost don't like you complaining to them. Yeah. You're offended by it, if you will. I want to hear How those tales. You? Yeah. Huh. you know what else is interesting? We're talking about people doing bad reviews. Celebrity restaurants get lower reviews than non-celebrity restaurants. And it's interesting if you look at mine or Gordon's or Guy's or Robert's or any of ours, always a little loud because people come into a celebrity restaurant, they want to bust us. Mm. <laughs> so it affects There's an expectation. It's like, oh, I see him on the Food Network or Paramount or whatever. It's like, this better be 11 out of 10. <laughs> I'm going to go blow him up on Yelp. And they do. <laughs> and they do. And they do. 
is the consumer different? I feel like in society, just decorum in general is down overall. Um, you might call that, you know, good or bad, casual or some sort of deterioration. I don't know. But are you noticing not just in terms of your employees, but your guests? Are are we collectively different these days? Yeah, I think people are um, antagonized by the external environment, the circumstance that we're all living in today is antagonizing. It's frustrating. And I think people get angrier quicker. I think they get frustrated quicker. You know, I read an article today about the Academy Awards and they're addressing how are they going to do the Academy Awards next year? They're terrified somebody else is going to get punched on stage. I mean, (laughs) these are professionals in show business. They can't even control their own professionals. What is the world turning into when the Academy Awards is worried about one celebrity punching another celebrity in next year's show? I mean, that speaks loudly to me about where the world is at. So if that professional can't contain himself in that environment, in a tuxedo, <laughs> then, then what about Joe Blow on the street? So I sense that this tension is affecting all of us in a lot of ways. 30 seconds, John. What is your favorite story or development coming out of the new season of Bar Rescue? Oh, boy. Uh, probably my favorite story is, is the first episode. Husband, wife, that $400,000, wife is ready to leave him. Two kids are ready to leave him. He had four doubles at 8.30 by the time I got there. He gave up, guy. The pandemic took him down so much that he had nothing left. So I have to come in and get that fire back, leverage his wife's relationship, his children's relationship. This started about as ugly as it can get. And wait till you see the end. Oh, boy. Well, that's Sunday night, this coming Sunday, the 26th, 10 p.m. Eastern, Paramount Network, it's Bar Rescue with host John Taffer, my guest here on The Guy Benson Show, fellow panelists tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. John, it means a lot that you listen to the show. It is great to meet you, and I can't wait to do Gutfeld. Same here, buddy. See you there. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour, Guy Benson Show here in New York. Joining me in studio, Jimmy Fela, host of Fox Across America, Fox News Radio, our colleague here. Also, guest hosting for Greg Gutfeld tonight on Gutfeld! I'll be on the panel a full hour together, Jimmy. Yes, it's a big deal, and I just want to clear up for the viewers that I didn't get taller. I'm just going to be sitting on three phone books tonight because I'm in Greg's chair. So I actually made the point at the top of the show, will they bring you a different throne, a different <laughs> size throne? Because we have we have different dimensions for these two individuals. Yeah, and to be clear, Greg is the king of late night. That's right. I'm more like the Rodney king of late night. Uh-oh. I, I take a little bit of a beating on the set, but I, I absorb it. I have wow. a good time. It's comedy, folks. Don't take it seriously. It's going to be a banger. Guy Benson's on the panel. Kat Timph is on the panel. Walter Kern is on the panel. John Taffer from Bar Rest. You. How about that? Who was just our guest moments ago on this program. It's just, we're doing a lot of Gutfeld synergy it's here of, on the show today. Yeah, we're synced up. This is your first time guesting for Greg. True story. Are you nervous? No. I, I am. Listen, man, I, you know, I drove a cab and did stand up. I am so dead on the inside. Like, this is really exciting to the people around me. But to me, like, I've Do you real, ever get nervous about anything? Nothing. I really, but I mean this through repetition. When of, Christine pulled a gun on you earlier. That's so hot. Just... I, I usually have to go on Craigslist personals for one of those. So I'm also saving money. But no, the, the truth is, um, you know, as they say, like repetition builds confidence. Like I do between stand up and, you know, we get to host our own radio show. Like I'm excited. I'm not nervous. Like, and, and you know, it's funny. Eli Manning, Giants quarterback, 
who two great playoff runs for us, but absolutely sucked every other season and every other moment. But I once heard him say, like, pressure is what you feel when you're not prepared. You know, and I always feel like when I'm going into one of these hits, the odds of like a community college guy who plays video games in his 40s getting one of these opportunities are very slim. So I have a lot of respect for the opportunity and I prepare like crazy. So I'm not nervous because I feel prepared. I get a little nervous, even though I also feel prepared. Like even so I give speeches a fair but amount. But you care. You're young. Look at all the hope in your face. Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> like when I go to give a talk. Even if it's a similar talk to one I've already given and I know it's good, I know it gets laughs, I mm-hmm. know it pulls the heartstrings, I know that it works. Yeah. I still backstage get a little bit nervous because you're, you know, yeah. it's a show. You got to go out there. You got to perform. I don't know. I, I don't think it's debilitating. All right. Let me give it to you this way then. So the reason for me, I think, that I find it a little bit easier is when you start out in stand-up for real, you're performing in like opium dens on the Lower East Side (laughs) for other comics who aren't even watching your act. They're looking through their notebook and they just want to get you off the stage so they can get on. Now, if that goes well, uh, you wind up performing in like Italian restaurants for people eating dinner who didn't know they were going to be at a comedy show. For real. Like they thought they were going out for a quiet pasta dinner. Now they're getting crowd worked by some terrible comic. So the point is working your way up through the absolute bottom of the showbiz barrel. This makes sense. Makes the because progression easier. Under these circumstances, at least theoretically, people want to see you. Yeah, that's the point. That's so, a big upgrade. Yeah, the fact that anyone's even looking makes this so much easier. And there's production and bells and whistles and other capable people. So, yeah, no, it's a big win. You bet the over tonight, Guy Benson. Though I am looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel, Gutfeld with Fela in for Greg. See you there. Rock and roll. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy hour on a Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the program, Congresswoman Ashley Hinson, Republican of Iowa, made her first appearance on the show, looked forward to that leading up to it, had a great conversation. Here's a part of it. Listen, it's the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I know there's some discussion, including on the political right, about what America should be doing about it. Is the U.S. doing too much, too little? Uh, sort of leave that to other people is one rallying cry or stand with Ukraine is the other rallying cry. As we reflect back collectively on the last year and you watch that conflict and you think about America's role in the world, how do you view it? Yeah, well, and I've talked to a lot of Iowans about this issue. Uh, Iowans are very clearly freedom-loving people. And I think it goes without saying we do stand with the people of Ukraine in their fight against Putin. Um, Putin's a thug, plain and simple, and I don't think anyone wants to see Putin win this war. It was an unprecedented invasion of a sovereign nation a year ago today, and we we cannot um, allow that to continue. We can support Ukraine while making sure that there is accountability for the taxpayer dollars that we're sending over there. And I think that's where that balance needs to come into play. We can make sure that they have the lethal aid necessary to win the war. But, I mean, I'm an appropriator, and I think it's really important that we have that oversight over taxpayer dollars so we can make sure they're being spent as they were intended. And I think another important point here, and we're, we're hearing a lot about China right now, but China and Russia are really forming an unholy alliance yep. here. And that's, I think, kind of the sleeper cell part of this conversation because they continue to posture super aggressively toward Taiwan. 
Um, my friend, who's the, the chairman of the Select Committee on China, Mike Gallagher, just got back from Taiwan. And I just I guess I would highlight what he said coming back from that trip, that he wants to make sure President Xi is waking up every day looking toward Taiwan and saying, mm, not today. Today is not the day. Right. So we need to deter that from happening. And we need to make sure that dictators, authoritarian dictators like Xi and Putin are not emboldened in this process. Yeah, and look, I understand there's there's nuance to foreign policy. I also think sometimes there's room for just simple thinking. And it's, to me, pretty simple. If you've got Russia and China and Iran in an alliance together, I'm very interested in being on the other side of whatever they're, whatever they're up to almost all of the time. And I think some of that comes into play on questions like we're talking about. You mentioned the, the special committee on China. And uh, we know Congressman Gallagher well. He's on this program a lot. What is your what is your posture in terms of that committee and what you think ought to be achieved? And can those things be achieved in this era of polarization in a way that is meaningfully bipartisan and doesn't descend into sort of the typical right versus left, R versus D bickering and sniping that we see so often? Yeah, and I think that this committee is a, a prime example of where uh, people on both sides of the aisle can can overcome those challenges. And you see that in who is selected for this committee, right? It is uh, serious legislators who do want to work together because I think we can all agree that communist China, the CCP, is our greatest threat bar none. Um, and that's something when you look at the vote that came off the floor to populate this committee, stand it up, it was a hugely bipartisan vote. So I think that this is a great opportunity for us to stand up to um, what is a growing uh, military power, um, growing spy and espionage power. China is spying on us. So whether it's the Chinese spy balloon floating over our country, gathering that sensitive intelligence for a week, or uh, the way I see it, uh, 210 million Chinese spy balloons on our phones because everybody has TikTok on their phones. So we need to make sure that we are putting a stop to the CCP's espionage tactics and um, I think the, the purpose of our committee and the balance we're going to strike is understanding that we are a global economy. We cannot uh, separate ourselves entirely from every single industry, but we need to be focused on being strategic and competitive because we have let China get away with things for decades. And there is no reason they should be buying land close to our military bases. There is no reason they should be stealing our intellectual property and being allowed to get away with it. Last topic, and you raised it a few moments ago. In your previous life, in your previous career, you interviewed a lot of presidential candidates coming through your state of Iowa for the caucuses, both sides of the aisle. Obviously, that's starting to ramp up. Uh, there's now a potential primary challenger to Joe Biden in Marianne Williamson, maybe not uh, the most serious of people, but that's sort of an interesting little story out there. And then on the Republican side, so far, two are in. Uh, and expect uh, we, we all expect multiple others to jump in at some point or at least test the waters. Just talk about the process from an Iowan's perspective, because the Democrats have already cut Iowa loose. Right. The, that tradition is basically over. They felt like Iowa was not representative is too white, all the things. So they've they've taken the first in the nation away from Iowa. The Republicans are sticking with the tradition and sort of the sequence so far. What's the because I'm I'm open to this idea that maybe it doesn't make sense to always start with the exact same states and it becomes a little cottage industry. Like I can be a little cynical about that. 
Is there a positive side to it that you experience that you think people should at least think about? Well, absolutely there is. And I think the Democrats abandoned Iowa, and I think it was for the wrong reasons. And realistically, um, you know, they want to cite diversity as being a challenge, but Iowans selected Barack Obama in 2008 to be our presidential nominee. And look what happened there. So I think that it was incredibly short-sighted. Iowans know how to put these presidential candidates through the ringer, and I'm thankful that the uh, Republicans decided to have our backs and continue to back the caucuses in the first in the nation process here in Iowa. And just a few years ago, President Biden was sitting on someone's floor, uh, watching basketball, having a beer with him, having a conversation. And you really get to know uh, somebody's true character and, and like we were talking about, develop a good relationship with them and, and get them on the record on policies. Um, you don't get that when it only becomes about who can buy the most TV time and who's going to do a big event um, for a big crowd. So that's where I think Iowa's process does matter when it comes to vetting these candidates and putting them through the ringer. Um, and because of that, you know, I've been as a member of Congress, I think Iowa voters hold me to the same standard they hold our presidential candidates to. And so um, I think that's a really important characteristic of the Iowa caucuses. And I think it's why we still deserve to be first in the nation. And we, we do our job to select a good candidate and then um, make sure that they're uh, ready to go and take on the country's problems. My full exchange with Ashley Hinson, Republican congresswoman from the 2nd District of Iowa, Available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Part of the entire show available start to finish for free on demand on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Other options there as well. When we come back, it's the home stretch. We'll talk about some plans upcoming this weekend. Also, look back to my trip to Jordan. Producer Christine has been curious for days. She finally gets to unload with questions next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday on The Guy Benson Show in New York City. Thank you very much for tuning in. Catch me tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern. Then on The Big Show, Saturday and Sunday. That's at 5 p.m. Eastern. All of that on Fox News Channel. Here on the radio, our podcast free, including Bonus Benson on the weekends, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, since we're here in New York and the gang's all here, including Wyatt, we're in the same place at the same time. It's pretty rare with our little radio family, so we're going to have a night on the town. Going out to dinner, maybe a few drinks or more for certain people, and I'm looking forward to that. We're going the Chinese food route tonight. There's a place that I tried for the first time, sampled it a few weeks ago, delicious, and now the whole team will enjoy treating the Guy Benson Show team to dinner. I'm looking forward to it. Now, yesterday... I spoke at the beginning of the show about my trip to Jordan on the more serious geopolitical stuff that I saw and learned, the refugee camp, et cetera, and my home stretch topic that we were talking about, some of the lighter stuff from the trip, got shoved off to today because of my getting stuck in an elevator experience for almost an hour at the hotel when I was worried I was going to miss the show. Then they eventually pulled me out of like the hole, basically, to get out of there. I had a few people, by the way, tell me that I should not have done that because if the elevator had shifted while I was getting pulled out, it could have just severed a limb or my body, except the elevator technician was there. And so he seemed to have things under control. I wanted to get out of there. Everything's fine. Although I will tell you, the elevators are still out 
both of them now at the hotel. So there's a third elevator elsewhere that we're using. I've also been taking the stairs. It's just just a thing. I'm not quite over it. However, all that being said, producer Christine has many questions about Jordan and my trip there. She's very curious. We don't have a ton of time, but we have to let her scratch the itch. And I've also gotten questions from listeners on social media, DMs, like, hey, what do you do there? Are you going to tell us about this? So here's the chance, Christine. You speak for the audience. You have a really important responsibility, a sacred one, you might even say, to ask the right questions. So in the time that we have remaining, fire away. I saw a lot of pictures and I had questions. What was happening on your head in the desert? So that is the kafia, and it's the red and white color, which is the Arabic version. The black and white is the Palestinian version. They were offering to sell me that. I was not eager to purchase that one personally. But that's sort of a very typical Arab male headdress. My parents actually bought one for me, mini, when I was a kid because I was born in Saudi Arabia. So I have this little tiny baby version of it with the little black circle that holds it on top. I didn't get that particular piece. I just got the scarf, if you will, this time around. And number one, I think it's kind of a cool look. Number two, I was over there, right, in the Arabian desert of Jordan. I was a little bit worried about the potential allegation of cultural appropriation because this is what we are as a society now. So I was thinking about it, and I tried to explain to our guide, sort of our driver for that portion of the trip, why I was hesitant and trying to explain. He had good English, not perfect. The concept of cultural appropriation, he looked at me like I had seven heads. And then he eventually just said, it is cool, it is fun, get it, wear it. Like, like he just, it did not even occur to him that it would be offensive at all. I was like, yeah, you know what, screw it. It's a cool look. The guy who sold it to me literally tied it onto my head properly. And I wore it that way for a while. I also wore it as a scarf around my neck with a ball cap later on. I think it was a nice, appropriate accessory. And I was prepared. If anyone came at me for it, I would explain that I got permission from the people there to do it who thought the whole appropriation thing was crazy. Also, they wanted my money. And secondly, I was born over there. This is my lived experience. How dare you? How dare you question my lived experience and my personal heritage and my story, my journey, my truth? So I was ready with all of that. But it seems like people, for the most part, stayed away from that stupidity. Thank goodness. Now, while you were wearing that and you were in the desert, I did notice some pictures of some camels. Yes. Did you get on top of the camel? That's correct. Now, I've seen on The Real Housewives, they've gone overseas and into the desert, and these camels have bucked my poor housewives off, left and right. Did that happen to you? There was no bucking. Um, We rode camels for probably about half an hour in the desert, and then eventually we stopped and we had tea in this little fire in the middle of the desert, this vast, incredible desert. The area is called Wadi Rum. It's been the site of multiple film scenes. It feels like you're on a different planet. It feels like you are on Mars. And it's so red. Some of the photos really were just incredible. I got, and I put it on my Instagram, Guy P. Benson, this amazing photo, portrait mode, of a camel looking directly at me. This was one of the camels that we had ridden. 
and it almost looks like the camel is smiling, like posing for this photo. It's straight on. I got pretty close. I was a little nervous. It came out great. And it was cool. It was surreal. And it was just kind of like, you know what? We're here. It's an option. It's going to cost a little bit of money, but we're riding the damn camels. Let's go. Let's get it. Love that for you. Also, I noticed you were by the Dead Sea. I saw some pictures there. Now, did you take a dip in there and float? I did. It's impossible to not float. If you've ever been to the Dead Sea, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, it's hard to explain. It is so salty. The salinity is so high that it is extremely difficult to not just have all of your limbs floating. Like, you have to force yourself to, like, force your legs down if you want to stand up. It's that level of buoyancy. It's crazy. And then they've got all the mineral-rich mud. So I actually had a mud treatment on all of my skin. They covered me basically head to toe in Dead Sea mud, which was an experience. And then they wrapped me up in, like, this little sarcophagus. It was weird. But I guess it has all this good cleansing power or whatever. Had a great time. Someone was blasting Danza Kuduro at the beach. I was, like, all about it. It's It's a hot jam. How would I fit in over there? I mean, I would say about as well as you fit in most places, you know, which is, I mean, draw your own conclusions. By the way, I'd been to the Dead Sea before on the Israeli side. This was on the Jordanian side. So I took a very similar selfie to my Dead Sea photo from the Israel side from like six or seven years ago. And I'm going to post them back to back, I think, on Instagram. Coming attractions. I mean, those pictures. I mean, I... I love watching you because you just really live life to the false and you go anywhere and experience anything and try everything. Um, so I'm loving all of this. I feel like your favorite part of the trip, I think if you could have gotten over some of your fears and concerns about Petra and Wadi Rum and the Dead Sea, not that these are scary places, but just, you know, you being you, a little bit more reserved and not as open to super adventurous stuff abroad, I think you would have enjoyed the end of the trip in Amman. We got a ridiculous rate at the Ritz-Carlton in Amman, which is brand new. It's like two years old. It is stunning. Well, now you're talking. Our rate was like 150 bucks a night. It was one of the nicest hotels I've ever stayed in. Our suite was unbelievable. And they have a cocktail bar, Christine, that was exquisite. And the bartender, Mustafa, yes, we became friends with him. At one point, I asked for a cocktail he'd never heard of. So I explained what it was, and he looked it up, and he decided to try it on us. So he made this cocktail and delivered it, and it was good, not great. The balance of certain ingredients was slightly off. He said, how is it? And I said, it's good. I was being polite. He said, tell me the truth. I want you to tell me for real if it's good. And I said, it needs more of this, less of that. To be honest, this is good, but it could be great. On our very last night, we're getting ready for our flights. We go to our last dinner elsewhere in the hotel. He found out where we were eating, and he sent a handwritten note. And two of these cocktails made perfectly. Talk about hospitality and talk about something that might appeal to one cookie, Christine. Unbelievable. I wonder how his Cosmos are. I bet you they're very good. Maybe you can go visit Mustafa. With you? You know what? I it's I feel like I've got another country up next on my list. But maybe you and Bobby could go over there. All right. We'll work on it. And one last thing before we go, and we can recap this on Monday. I find it very telling that you picked a restaurant for us tonight that has no bar. That is true, but it does have alcohol. Oh, it does? Yes. Mm. I think it's mostly just beer and wine. I'm sorry. So you'll have to get your cocktail on beforehand, which I think you are. 
Yes, I am. Right, because our reservation's like an hour from now, and you're dragging Wyatt to babysit you for Cosmos first. If I'm not yet, Wyatt is, Wyatt is nodding his head. I think I see a tear actually rolling down his cheek. He's very excited. Tears of joy. I'm sure that's what that is. Yes, he looks like he looks like a hostage right now. Wyatt, blink if you need help. Well, that'll be fun tonight. Looking forward to our feast. We'll talk all about it on Monday. Have a great weekend. It's the Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.